You are listening to the Get Your Head in the Game podcast with Shannon Beasley Tate, episode 13. Welcome to Get Your Head in the Game, the podcast dedicated to helping you design the playbook for the life that you want with confidence, clarity, and purpose. I'm your host, Shannon Beasley Tate. The clock is ticking. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. And if you're new, I'm so super excited that you're here. This is a really good one to start with. And if you're brand, brand new to the podcast, welcome, welcome, welcome. You're going to get some really great help today. We've been focusing on a really good topic that applies to everyone who's listening. And as we continue our conversation about money management, you'll be able to get more and more deeper dive into that topic so that you can figure out how to navigate and work your life based on your finances. If you don't know who I am, I am a life coach and I work with clients on getting the best for and from themselves. What I'm really excited about after getting some feedback from listeners over the last few episodes is that they want to know even more about managing their money so that they can live a life of freedom, that I can help people tap into that freedom. On May 13th, so mark this on your calendar, May 13th, I will be hosting a free workshop called Get Your Money Right. And I would love for you to join me and my guest, Kendall Jones from the Jones Coaching Group. What I'll do in this workshop is cultivate conversation on exactly what you need to do to stop money from holding you back from living your dreams. What we will demonstrate in the workshop is how making more money is not always the solution. I know that's hard to believe. Everybody thinks that making more money will solve the problems, but it's about managing the money that you currently have as that's the foundational key to ultimately growing your net worth. It's what's missing from most of the traditional money management approaches that we hear about. It's what I've been searching for in the last few decades of my life and to no avail because I kept making money and seeing it disappear and not making any progress towards my retirement or my business goals. So super important, no matter how you end up deciding to manage your money and your life, you will want to know this information for sure. Kendall and I will have answers to your questions. We'll be doing it live and it will be super, super fun. So the way to register for this course is deeprootscoachinggroup.com forward slash events. So again, go to deeprootscoachinggroup.com forward slash events. You'll be able to get all the information you need there. I will also put some information in this episode notes so you'll be able to remember where to go to register. And this is a stretch. You know, I talk about stretching and growing and changing. I am not a tech savvy person. I've asked for some help. I've looked at some YouTubes to make sure this thing can go off really, really well. Now, also at the end of the workshop, I'll tell you a little bit more about the Deep Roots Coaching Program and how you can connect with me and also will be able to connect with Kendall as well. And so if that's something you're interested in, that's great. You're definitely going to want to come and join us live and ask us any questions about what we do to help you cultivate confidence, clarity, and purpose with your finances and also your life. In today's episode, we're going to continue our conversation with my guest, 
Kendall Jones, which is part two of our financial series. In part one, which I highly suggest you listen to, we had a great conversation focusing on finances in your 40s, 50s, and even into your 60s, our emotional connection to money, and how that impacts our most important relationships. So today we're going to continue with this robust conversation and discuss growing your net worth and some basics around investing because we heard a lot of feedback around those areas. And so if you weren't able to listen to the Get Your Money Right Part 1 from last week, our guest, Kendall Jones, who is the founder of Jones Coaching Group, is a personal finance strategist and coach that specializes in the busy professional. So welcome back. Kendall. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. Yes. So glad that you're here so that you can really help continue the conversation. And what I wanted to concentrate in this part two episode is around some of the complex personal finance cases that you've worked on with some of the individuals and families that you've helped recover from bankruptcy, rebuilding after divorce or separation, how you've helped new couples, and how you help create goal-focused strategies for your clients. So could you expand on some of that since we're really focusing on how to really grow your net worth? Sure. So in reference to some of the cases that I've worked on, um, you know, sometimes I get cases that are kind of simple and easy as far as um, maybe people don't have a lot of debt, right, to fix, or they don't have a lot of things in collections, or they didn't have bankruptcies. Um, Even with those cases, they're still very unique and individual, right? Because everyone has their own individual financial goals. They also have their own past history, that they that we have to deal with and that they might need to undo right right um but as far as some of the complexity of some of the uh, clients that i've had i have had bankruptcies before um i've had people who have who were previously in bankruptcy um and as a result they're in the process of rebuilding and in rebuilding what they're doing is uh, maybe paying off some more of those debts that they had. It all depends on what kind of bankruptcy they they went through. Right. Um, and also building that cash reserve and changing their relationship to money um, and kind of repairing from the hurt, right, that can happen mm-hmm. when you go through bankruptcy, rebuilding their confidence. Um, right. In the sense of divorce, um, what tends to happen in a lot of the divorce cases that I've had is maybe the person that I'm working with was left over with some past debts due to the divorce, right? Um, I've had not only in divorced couples, I've also had in married couples where there's financial infidelity. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a pretty common thing, actually, amongst the people that I tend to attract as clients. Um, But yes, where there's financial infidelity, where one partner may have signed their other partner's name and put their social security number down on credit cards or personal loans. And so there's a lot to recover when it comes to that, because not only do you have your emotional relationship to how you've handled money, you have the hurt of your partner doing that to you. And then how do you resolve it? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So those are just some scenarios in, in the sense of bankruptcy and divorce. As far as new couples are concerned, or even sometimes like right now I have a couple and they've been married for a while, but they want to have a new lease on money and they want to do it together. 
Right. What I tend to do with those couples is say, okay, you're an individual and you're an individual. So what are your individual goals? Mm-hmm. And what are the goals that you can have together? Because I think it's really important in a relationship to still have financial autonomy. That doesn't mean that you can't have goals together. Right. You should have goals together. But it's really important for the individuals to have their own financial goals as well and have some sense of control over the money, some section of the money, right? There's some sense of ownership, accountability, and control. And so I think when you still remain autonomous in your relationship, it makes the relationship stronger in a lot of ways, especially if you are all are both on board. Also, I hate to say this, but I'm going to just throw it out there. But if the relationship ever comes to a point where it's not quite working the way that you want it to work and you do have to consider divorce, it makes things a lot easier, you know, oh, that yeah. you both have financial autonomy. So um, with new couples, I'm looking at who's the strongest one in which area and how do we build up all of your competent, both of your competencies in finance so that you all are both very strong partners for each other? And how do you all both have accountability for each other, but also have accountability for yourself when it comes to your financial goals? Oh, I really like that. You've said a mouthful already because (laughs) I, I just know from my own experience personally and from clients that I've worked with that really understanding what your individual goals are and your goals as a family are really, really do matter. And one Mm -hmm. thing that I'm carrying over from last week's episode that you said that was really important to me, and I'm sure to the listeners as well, is that you don't need anyone's permission to take care of your finances. And, and And I think that sometimes when you're married, you have this guilt or you have this, you know, angst around, well, I don't want to make my partner upset. Or if Mm -hmm. I say this, they'll get mad. And with my own coaching practice, what I realized I had to say to a lot of them is, and so what? I mean, Mm -hmm. if if they do get upset, if they do get mad, if they do question, all those things are bringing out a lot, not only about a person's character and really the strength of your relationship sometimes, but also some of their own fears or ignorance. And, right. and I think that understanding those and revealing those makes a big difference as well as you're trying to grow your wealth. But just mm-hmm. to take a step back from that, because I want to, you know, even though a lot of us are savvy and we have some really great people in the audience that have a deep understanding of this, but what is net worth anyway? So if we were to to look at the the basic formula of net worth, it is your assets minus liabilities. So that's your net worth, right? So your assets are, you know, any cash reserves you have, investment accounts like your uh, 401k, as well as if you have maybe a brokerage account that's a taxable investment account, um, your your equity in your home, your equity in your car, and I'm putting this all in quotes because the car can kind of be a little bit of a, um, you know, something, you know, fine jewelry, 
antiques. Mm. Those are all the assets. And your liabilities are usually, if we just want to make a blanketed statement, it's the money that you, you owe, period. So a lot of times people think, for example, with investment properties, they think they're building up their net worth. And it's not always that way. I mean, if you hold the investment property long enough, then maybe you, you can possibly get, you will possibly get to that point due to inflation period, mm-hmm. you know, but if you're running around getting HELOCs and things like that on your property too, you're also zapping that net worth. So that's just the basic formula of net worth. Now, something to remember is that you don't get to determine the value of all your assets. The market determines the value of all your assets. Right. Where you think that this antique chest that your aunt gave you is incredibly valuable, the market has to determine that it's an antique and that it's incredibly valuable. You don't get to determine that for yourself. Yeah, I I totally get that. I did that when I was closing up my parents' house when they Mm -hmm. both had passed. And my mom and my mom, especially my dad didn't pay attention to it. But he always talked. She always talked about these antiques. And if anything should happen to me, you you can get a good price for this and that. And (laughs) And I would crack up. So, of course, I did have some an estate person come in and take a look at those uh, pieces and they're like well here's the deal your parents (laughs) stuff is interesting but it's too young to be considered an antique and too old for people to care and that's what was happening right right you that's the thing a lot of times we are we inherit a lot of things um if we're lucky we inherit a lot of things um but as a result sometimes Everyone else thinks it's incredibly valuable, but it's not necessarily valuable. You know, I see people have storage units full of things that were given to them from their family because they believe it was valuable. But if you've never had someone come out and look at that stuff, you don't really know, you know, and usually the things are too young. And that's the truth, right? Um, So that's pretty much the formula for net worth. And so if you have that formula in your mind and you're you're going through life and you're saying, I'm building my net worth, you'll make some different decisions sometimes about what you consider purchasing and what you don't consider purchasing, you know, so. That makes sense. I mean, and I think you tapped into something else. Again, kind of these two things tie with each other with growing your net worth and really looking at your emotional connection with money. Because Mm -hmm. a lot of times people will hold on to a lot of things or keep storage units for years and years and years where they're paying $200, $300 a month for somebody else's stuff that was grandma's or mom's or dad's or uncle's or whatever. And most of it has no value to you at all. Other than I used to love going to grandma's during the summer and seeing that lamp, but you have $20,000 worth of debt, but you're paying out two, $300 a month for a storage unit that if somebody asked you what is in there right now, you couldn't even really tell what's right there. yeah right yeah. yeah storage unit that industry is a multi-billion dollar industry in the U.S. because of our obsession with things that we have in this country and I'm not saying I mean I have a lot of the furniture I have are, is inherited furniture from my aunt and you know but I wasn't I kept it in a storage unit for a couple of years but it was more of the external pressures of other people that knew her 
that said that it was really important. And so at a certain part point, I had to liquidate the storage unit and take the things out that I was the closest to, the things that when I really look at them, I said, this is my aunt's whatever. And I really resonate with this item because this is my aunt's item. And then let the other pieces go because $200 a month, 10 months, that's $2,000. And that usually can pay off a credit card or something like that. Or you could put that $2,000 in an investment account and, that's and make why, $200 more on it, you know? So, you know, it's yeah, not the and, best option. And that's why when people are like, oh, I need to make more money, not necessarily. We, we just found most people that are listening to us today, $200 a month. We just found that, you know, yeah. we, just, we just found out that cutting off HBO Max or cutting off the 18 of the 300 channels that you have on cable, that you can get rid of a lot of those. And you might find 50 $60 a month, $100 a month extra mm-hmm. in just your day-to-day living that can shift what you want to do to start growing your net worth. Um, right. Another thing that you mentioned in our previous episode was something that you did yourself, but I think it's key again to this growing your net worth conversation. And that is around how you have mastered paying for things in cash. And Mm -hmm. I know that that was something that gave me angst when you and I were working together uh, because I'm like, I have these credit cards, Kendall, and (laughs) they don't have any balance on them. So what do you mean I need to go buy um, a new X for my business that's going to cost $1,000? Why can't I just put that on the credit card and pay it off? And you're like, that's (laughs) really cute. Um, but you're like, if you have the cash, spend the cash. Why did you give that advice to me? And what did you say to people that are listening today? Well, this is the thing. If we look at, and I'm glad you led with the net worth part so that this makes way more sense, right? <laughs> what I'm about to explain. But if you look at net worth and how to really build net worth, you don't want to get debt on a depreciative asset. Okay, so mm-hmm. that's the thing. And most of the things we're buying with our credit cards are not depreciative, are not appreciative assets. You know what I mean? Like right. most of those things are clothes or TV or something. There's very few appreciative assets, by the way. There's not a lot of appreciative assets. Right. You know, property, land, things like that. Um, that's appreciative. But outside of that, there's really not many mainstream things that are appreciative assets. So with that being said, you could get this, you know, why would you pay 13% to purchase something when you have the cash for it? I pay cash for everything that is just a normal purchase and a depreciative asset. I don't use credit cards to purchase things. The only time I've made an adjustment is when it's a purchase of a car. And that's only because I ran the numbers so many different directions that I know, like, for example, and I'm very transparent, as you know, um, but when I just purchased a car, it is a nice car, it's a luxury car, but I didn't purchase a new car. I purchased a used luxury car that's three years old with less than 30,000 miles on it. Mm -hmm. As a result, it is actually over $22,000 less than the person that purchased that car. I put a significant down payment on that, which allowed me to outrun the depreciation of the car. Mm. 
The other thing is I did have that all that cash in the bank and I could have paid cash for the car. But because my credit score is in the 800s, my interest rate was only 2.4% on the car. Right. I make more money putting that money in investments than I do paying that whole car note off before. I mean, I could just run the term of the car note and it's fine. Right. So with that being said, if you think about the formula for net worth and you're keeping that in the forefront of your mind, with my purchase of the car, I kept my net worth at at the same level because I outran the depreciation rate of the car. Wow. So I'm not going to be upside down on the car. Which is really good. Most people don't think about that or where Mm -hmm. that breaking point is between, you know, paying it all off in cash or using what you have in a different way. And that's why it's so key working with you in this area to master where that breaking point may be, where the exceptions are. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The the other thing to consider is that usually uh, it's just one thing to be aware of is debt is highly advertised in this country. It's advertised more than the product is. Usually debt, when you look at a commercial, debt is connected to the product. It's like, oh, you could go to this sale at this store and on your credit card or get a credit card and save this amount. So the debt is automatically connected to the product. It's very commercialized. It's a high value um, industry in this com- in this country. Mm-hmm. So the thing about it is it really messes with you mentally because what we have a problem with is patience. Yes. Yes. And yes. The, yes. The more patient you are, the faster you win with money. It sounds a little weird and contradictory, but the faster you win with money. It's the reason why we purchased our house and I saved cash to buy all the furniture instead of putting cash on payments. Right. Now that right. takes patience to pay cash for all the furniture in your house, but that's what patience does. Patience allows you to build wealth. And and you did that with me with one of the bills. I think I had a bill for my daughter's uh, braces or dental work that she was having, and I could have taken a tax refund. And paid it off all in one month kind of thing. But you're like, no, we're working on your patience right now. We're working Mm -hmm. on your ability to create a plan for yourself monthly. And that way, yes, you could pay a little bit more and pay it off early. And this is what it looks like if you pay it off early. But you helped me to learn how to be patient. Because Mm -hmm. I was anxious to just let that money go and and all of that. You're like, no. You're going to pay it off in the time that you set that we right. talked about. And I did, but mm-hmm. it, it was, it was a challenge. And I think retraining people with this debt piece is big. Um, mm-hmm. Another thing I wanted to bring up here as we're talking about this net worth, I have some clients that I work with that we were talking about money and what they wanted to do ultimately. And one thing that they brought up is that they use their credit cards because they get rebates on them, you know, Uh and and it's like, oh, you know, if you have your 1% rebate on Discover or whomever it might be, what is your theory around that? Do you have anything to say as it relates to why you should or should not do that? Well, the thing is, is that the credit card companies have some of the best therapists and psychologists and psychiatric professionals working for them that are actually developing these programs to make you feel like you're winning all the time. Mm. 
And that's something to be really aware of. So the thing is, is that most people don't use their credit card and pay it off before 30 days. You know, the companies are not designed for those people. Right. If you're one of those people and you're like the 0.5% of all credit card havers that pay off their credit card at the end of the month, every month, congratulations. But don't assume that everybody else acts like that because right. that's not the case. So as a result of that, they know that you're carrying a balance over month to month. At the end of it all, they know that they're making money. They know that you, that when someone has a credit card, they're going to pull this balance over month to month. They're going to pay interest on this. And so the little bit of rebate they're giving you usually does not outweigh the amount you're going to pay in interest in that time period. Like right. if you were to look yeah. at it, if you were to give me your financial uh, statements for your credit card, I could probably prove it to you. And so when you think about these rebates and you think you're getting something great as a result of it, you know, the rebates are not a key or the cash backs or the discounts or whatever. They're really usually not a key to any kind of living a better quality of life. And as long and this is also their way of keeping you committed to the credit card. This right. Is so it's keeping a codependence there with the credit card. So. That's basically my answer. You know, if they feel if they make you feel like you can use this credit card to buy the normal things that people need just to get through life, groceries and gas and things like that, they've got you locked for life. Right. You'll be paying interest for life and most likely the rebates are not going to outweigh the interest that you're paying in your lifetime of having the credit card when you could just pay cash. This is the other thing. Why would I pay more money to spend my money? Right. Right. I I think that's key. Why would you pay more money to spend your money that you already have? Absolutely. Like, so what's the point? Even if you have a good interest rate on your credit card, and it's like 13 or 12 percent, which is very unusual. But I'm still paying 13 percent to spend money on gas on the money that I already had. Why would I spend more money to just spend my own money? I'm not trying to pay people to spend money. Right. Like if your gas was fifty dollars, why are you then spending 60 for that tank of gas for no good reason whatsoever? Right. Or fifty five or fifty seven if you have a good interest rate. Right. You know, but like it's really and you get one percent. Yeah. So like it's really not. It, the math doesn't add up to your favor is the point. So yeah, I, I really like that you talked about we're being targeted and preyed upon in that way. And it is a psychology. It's people behind the scenes really looking at what are spending habits for people and why are they not, you know, well, how do we get them and manipulate them into believing that they need us? And you had the key word there, and that is codependence. Mm-hmm. And that is a huge deal for sure. Mm-hmm. Deal. Mm-hmm. So with this topic, before we move on to investing, which is something I know people wanted to talk about, is there one step or one thing that you would recommend for people to grow their net worth? You know, I would say... There's a few things I could say, and and sometimes it's hard to answer this question, to be honest, Shannon, because it all depends on where people are financially. Mm -hmm. Um, If we were to talk about, let's say, let's say this person isn't overrun by debt that let's get this, like, if if we were to make a profile really quick and this person isn't overrun by debt, 
one of the first things that you can do to start building your net worth is really to look at your retirement, for example. That's mm. like a key. You know, just increasing your retirement by one percentage point. Sometimes when I tell people, most likely you're going to need to be investing 15% or 20% of your retirement, it's very intimidating to people. Yeah. I mean, that seems like a really big number. Right. It's not so bad if you've if you've paid off your debt, though, right. because you, it really doesn't impact you as much when you paid off your debt. But if you look at how can I just increase one percentage point every six months? Mm. In a couple of years, in three or three or so years, if you were investing 7%, you'll be at 14% in three years. And you would have made the adjustment like over that time. But the other thing is to look at the formula. If we're just talking about net worth, right? And it's your assets right. minus your liabilities. In order to build your net worth, you either need to increase your assets or decrease your liabilities. Right. And if you could do both then it happens even quicker. Right. The thing is, is that real financial comfort comes from usually the decrease of liabilities. Yes. That's yes. the thing, because that changes your month to month and how you how you live comfortably in your month, as well as increasing your um, net worth. And that's very true. I mean, I don't think people think about that. Again, everybody's looking on that asset side or that increase of income side when they're not spending a lot of time looking at where can I cut? Where can I go a little less expensive in certain things so that they can create the space to look at their retirement and increasing it by that 1% every six months or so that you're recommending? Right. Usually we're focused on the asset side. That's yep. one reason why um, property is so appealing to people. Right. Because it's an, it's on the, it focuses on the asset side and people think, oh, and somebody will just pay the mortgage every month and that'll take care of that investment. And it doesn't quite work that way. You know, oh, it doesn't have, work that way at all. Yeah. You've had your experience. Yes, <laughs> you can speak from experience. And I have one property that's an investment property. And I don't see it in, in the next five or seven years getting another one, you know, so right. it doesn't because it also brings in an element of risk. Yes. Because you have also increased your liability side of the equation. Yes. Yes. And, and it's an out of your control liability as well. So mm -hmm. it's not even because you can't control if a tenant doesn't pay. You can't control mm -hmm. if a tenant loses their job or if some major breakdown of an appliance or a system mm -hmm. like heating or air conditioning takes place and how that impacts your personal household. Again, right. I lost everything. Uh, had right. six, maybe seven properties going at one particular time in my life. And to try to keep all of that afloat and keep myself sane and my own household running was impossible. It just was absolutely yeah. impossible. It looked good on paper. And mm -hmm. again, like you said, there are so many advertisers and folks out there that are preying on the fact that most people want to get rich quick and they mm -hmm. want to find that workaround from that patience piece that you talked about and really right. looking within your own household to reduce your liabilities to help increase your assets and increase your wealth. And so mm -hmm. I'm going to kind of segue into this other piece that people are interested in, especially in this 40s, 50s, 60s age group. And that's understanding a little bit about investing. 
So what would Mm -hmm. you say is the first thing people should know if they're interested in investing? Well, the first thing that you should know is that investing, there's so many different types of investing. But if we were to just talk about stock market investing, for example, the first thing you should know is your risk tolerance and then challenge that, I would say. Because a lot of times, especially for women, for example, a lot of times we tend to be risk adverse, right? We're kind of conditioned in that way. I think we're more risk aware than we are risk adverse. Right. And as a result, we don't want to put as much money into the market, right? As right. a result of being that way. And when we do put that money in the, in the market, we want to be extremely conservative in our approach. Um, I would say that another thing to be aware of is the more that you have, and we keep bringing up debt, and debt is like the is like the the bad thing in the, on the, in this conversation over and over again. But the more you have debt, the less ability you have to build wealth. Right. And it's not just because of the equation of net worth of assets minus liabilities. It's also because of the liquidity you have every single month in order to grow your investment. Right. Because if you have that money going out the door every month and you have these high, high interest payments, right? right. You're not able to take those payments and, uh, and then shift that over into investments. Right. So you will be a much better investor and a stronger investor with less debt. And you might be willing to take a little more risk as a result. Absolutely. And, that was something that happened to me that I had no idea was going to happen. But after I paid off my debt, I was able to become a more aggressive investor and really prioritize it in a way that I couldn't before because I I don't have the same level of fear as I had before because I don't have as much overhead. Right. And, and I think what I remember one thing you did not only with me, but this isn't something that we should have to start thinking about in our 40s, 50s, and 60s, but you also had an opportunity to work with my children. And what I like mm-hmm. about that opportunity is not only are you setting a foundation for them to get a better understanding of money, it's for them to create a goal for themselves, which helps them to plan better than just, ooh, grandma gave me $100, let me go spend it all. But for right. them to figure out what investing means, what saving means, what spending means, what a uh, spending plan looks like. And I remember you worked with Asha on getting a better understanding of what is it, the Robin Hood? Right, Robin Hood app. Mm -hmm. And and the piece that you said to her was looking at investments of things that you use. And I thought that that was really neat. I mean, just looking at places where we spend our money, why not invest in some of those things that we do? Right. One of the things I try to do with teenagers and young adults when I take them through that coaching that you're talking about is really teaching them that you should prioritize investing over prioritizing purchasing things. Um, so we're, we always hear pay yourself first, but we don't right. really understand how to apply that into our lives. Um, and so I'm trying to condition them around that. And before I do anything in my whole entire month, you know, I work for myself. So I pay myself every single month for my business. The first thing I do is write a check towards my investments. Before I write a check to my mortgage, before I write a check to my utilities, investments come first. And spending is last. Right. 
investments are first and spending is last and the bills are in between, right? Right. And so what I'm trying to do with them and the, the beauty of that Robin Hood app, it's, I don't use Robin Hood, but the beauty of it, especially for young, younger people, is it makes it more accessible. Right. It, yes. It creates a convenience factor like all these apps do. So it takes two. It takes a lot of the steps in between you actually getting started. Right. Yeah. And so as a result, I try to teach them. So you're going to buy some Nikes this month. Before you buy those Nikes, buy some Nike app first. I'm sorry, buy some Nike stock first before you buy the Nikes. Then go buy the Nikes. Right. So it's conditioning them to invest first and teaching them also that you actually own a piece of this company. Right. Instead of always giving them your money, now you're an owner, quote unquote, of a, the company because you own a share of it. Oh, isn't that some good information and a good piece of advice for some of us uh, older um, mm-hmm. novices when it comes to investing as well, because we don't think about that. Like we think about how many times we go to Target or Walmart or used Amazon during this whole pandemic and all these other places. And it's like, if we had some ownership in these companies, it makes spending with them a little less brutal or at, at least less mindless. And I think mm-hmm. that that's really key. And, and I know when we do our workshop together next month, that we'll be able to really dive into this a little bit further and get some other people to bring your real life questions, everyone, to really help us figure out ways to help you differently. And Kendall will really focus a lot of her time on getting your finances right, getting your money together, getting your thoughts around money differently. And then the work that I do is helping you then after that foundation is built to be able to look at now what are your hopes and dreams and plans for your future so that you're able to do that with less stress and with more ease. And the other last thing that I wanted to ask you about with investing, and this is probably more just from a couple of clients that I've spoken with and some other friends that have asked me and I've been interested, is this whole Bitcoin cryptocurrency piece. And I'm sure Mm -hmm. we'll get those questions when we have the workshop, but is there anything you wanted to share about that and what that is? Well, you know, I don't own any Bitcoin. So let's, let me make sure I put that out there. One of the things I do is I do like what Warren Buffett does and he doesn't invest in anything he doesn't fully understand. Right. Okay. So he didn't have Amazon investment for example. Right. right. Now, did that really impact his net worth that much? He's Warren Buffett, you know? Right, right. So he invests in things that he fully understands. So, you know, as far as Bitcoin goes and cryptocurrency goes and things of that sort, I'm not an investor in those things. Um, I think that when it comes to investing, if I were to give some kind of framework to make people uh, make people a little more comfortable to take some steps um, outside of their norm of just putting money into their retirement. I believe if you know that you're putting enough into your retirement, that you are going to live a good, a good life in retirement, the money that you have left over after you've hit your other financial goals, mm-hmm. that's the money you use to do some of these things like buy Bitcoin or buy a single stock. Right. Okay? Right. Because The thing is, is you can't time the marketing. You can't predict the market. No one knew that long ago for sure that Bitcoin was going to be this major thing. There's always going to be some kind of new latest thing that people are like, you got to hop on this right now because you're going to lose out. There's always going to be that. But, you know, there's some people out there and there's a whole 
community of people who have learned how to retire early, very early, and they did not invest in Bitcoin. Right. Okay. They invest in, in index funds. Right. That's where they put their money, like index dividend funds, index funds that are mimicking the S&P 500, things like that. So when it comes to things like Bitcoin, I'm not saying don't do it. Right. I'm just saying think about you know, what you truly want and the certainty that you might want and create a investment style that mirrors that. But right. if this is money that you truly need, like this is the money you need to build that cash reserve you have, or this right. is that money that you need to pay off your debt, I would not suggest investing in single stocks or things like that. Because if you do that and it doesn't go the way you wanted to, now you have regrets because that was the money you could have used to change the quality of your month, your life month after month. Right. So I, you know, I just kind of like want to put that out there, like outside of your retirement, you should have at least three to six months of living expenses. If you have other financial goals that you want to hit, like traveling and things like that, you should be paying cash for those. And after those things, then you could start playing around with your money and, you know, doing things and not being worried if the $500 doesn't work out the, quite the way you wanted it to. I think that's great. And, and you're taking me into our last point today. And again, I could have you on for weeks at a time because there's <laughs> so much to cover. But again, in our workshop, we'll be able to do a deeper dive. But I think our last point for this session today is really about just having an overall financial health checkup, just like we do with our own physical health, our dental health. We go in, we get evaluated, we have blood drawn, we have other workups done on us to see where we stand physically and even mentally at times. But how many of us are taking that time to mm -hmm. do a financial health checkup, right? They just don't do it. So I mm -hmm. think that we need to spend that time looking at our psychology behind our money, looking at how we get preyed upon every day with these uh, businesses and companies out there that are targeting us for the hard-earned money that we have, that we remain codependent with these credit card companies and don't need to do that. How do we let that old way of thinking go, um, that we are able to then focus on our retirement and really pour into that and develop it the way that we need to and prioritize investing over purchasing when we're at that point that our retirement money is secure and we can do that. And like you said, spending is last. So is there anything in a financial health checkup that you would say is really key as we start to wrap up for today? Yeah, I think one of the things, and, and it's a little, if you haven't been proactively working on financial goals, it might be a little bit harder. Um, but one of the things I would look at, if I, if I were looking at my financial health checkup, is did I check all the boxes to ensure not only my immediate comfort as far as day in and day out, but also my future comfort, Right. So am I investing enough in my ret retirement is an example. Another example is, have I accumulated any more debt that I didn't have a year ago or two years ago? Do I have enough in savings to maintain the lifestyle that I currently have for that three to six months? Because you want to be able to comfortably go find another job. You know, you don't want to rush and have to just choose any old thing. 
because you don't have enough in savings. And so you want to, the, the financial health checkup to really look at your lifestyle creep, mm-hmm. right? Have you been, a, have you been fluctuating with this lifestyle creep? Has it gone up and has it gone down? The second thing I would look at is, do I even have any goals? And if I have those goals, am I on track? And where am I willing to stretch? Mm, right? right? Because sometimes you have the goal. And if you don't have a coach, it's, sometimes it's harder to keep that goal in front of you. Right. Because you don't have a lot of people around you doing the same thing you're doing. I had no one around me paying off any debt, let alone seventy one thousand dollars in Absolutely. debt. So it, it became very difficult a very a lot of times during the journey. But all of that to say, how on track are you with this goal and how much are you willing to stretch to get to that goal even quicker? Yep. And then I think neat. those are good places to actually start. And the, the last thing I'll say on that one is um, you know, really stop spending money on the person you are today and start spending money on the person you want to be. You know, it's very easy to fall backwards and keep spending money on the way we are currently, but you should be spending money on the person you want to be. The more you spend money on the person you want to be, the quicker you will become that person, but expect sacrifices to happen in order for that person to become true and reveal itself. So those are the three things I would I would look at as far as my financial checkup is concerned. Yeah, I, I really like those three things. Just really seeing if you are looking at your lifestyle creep so that you can determine if you are on track with the goals that you have or resetting those goals. If you haven't set those goals in a while, that you're able to stretch a bit because if you are able to stretch, then what you were saying is that that will give you the ability to spend money in the way that you are spending for the person that you want to become. That is the best health checkup I could think of. And I think (laughs) this is great information that you shared that we can go even deeper on when we have our workshop on May 13th. And I've gotten some great feedback from our last episode. People are interested. They are ready to hear what you have to say. They are ready to enjoy this conversation with us so that people can get their money right, which is what the workshop is entitled. So again, this will take place through Deep Roots Coaching Group on May 13th at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And we're going to go deeper into this conversation and answer your questions. So right now, go stop everything you're doing. Go register at deeprootscoachinggroup.com forward slash events. Again, deeprootscoachinggroup.com dot com forward slash events. And you'll be able to see information there about Kendall, who she is, how you can connect with her as well. And you'll be able to learn a little more about what the Deep Roots Coaching Group program is. So that is all that we have for you today. I want to thank you, Kendall, for being on the show this week, last week, and I hope to have you on again. Absolutely. I would love to come back. Thank you for having me. And remember, in order to walk through life with confidence, clarity, and purpose, you've got to get your head in the game. Have a great day, everyone.